2: Seeking truth and justice in a
3: battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett
4: Show.
0: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it,
5: and stick your head out and yell I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not
2: going to take this anymore.
3: I ask you not only to win the battle, but to win the war.
5: I'm not We're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through
2: her eyes, if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved
6: out for himself after centuries of fighting.
2: You're out of order. You're out of order. The whole trial is out of order. You have meddled with the
4: primal forces of nature, and you.
3: And good afternoon, and welcome to uh, one of the. Oh, it's Thursday Eve. Friday Eve. It's Thursday, meaning it's Friday Eve. There you go. Happy Friday Eve. (laughs) Welcome to uh, one of the very few radio programs in the Dominion of Canada that stands up for truth, beauty, and goodness. Actually, I can count on one hand the number of terrestrial radio programs in this country that are unflinchingly, uncompromisingly patriotic and conservative. And three of those programs are on this very radio station. Mark Patrone, Greg Carrasco, and your humble chat show host, Slash Bloviator. All right, here on the uh, Mighty News Talk Saga 960. Um, we're an island. I mean, just forget all the rest. We don't run with the herd. Or should I say, the lemmings? Uh, because if you watch any of those nature shows on television, you know the ultimate fate of the lemming. What do lemmings do? Who is paying attention? Of course, during their migration, they run off the edge of a cliff to their death. But uh, put another way, the uh, great Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius said, the object of life is not to be on the side of the majority, but to escape finding oneself in the ranks of the insane. The uh, notorious and greatly anticipated Jeffrey Epstein documents finally... Released last night. Included in the documents were the names of acquaintances and associates of the wealthy financier, including that of former U.S. presidents, a former vice president, a theoretical physicist, a hedge fund manager, a former U.S. governor, an illusionist, British royalty, a prominent law professor. Again, released uh, last night. And uh, this was all part of a, a suit, a lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell back in 2015. The documents, the first in more than 200 that are expected to be unsealed over the next few days, are part of the defamation lawsuit filed by victim Virginia Roberts Jufre. Ghislaine Maxwell had previously called Jufre a liar after she alleged that Epstein and Maxwell had abused her. And that case was eventually settled in 2017, but Maxwell was later sentenced to a 20 year prison uh, sentence for recruiting young girls for uh, Epstein to sexually exploit them. Celebrities like Bruce Willis, Cameron Diaz, Kate Blanchett, Kevin Spacey, Naomi Campbell, Leonardo DiCaprio are also mentioned in the records, but they have not been accused of helping Epstein in any capacity. One of the witnesses or one of the victims was simply asked if they if if she had met any of the aforementioned people. And she denied it. Connections to uh, Epstein previously led high level executives to resign from their positions, including Barclays chief executive, Jess Staley. Jean-Luc Brunel, a French modeling agent suspected of scouting girls for Epstein, killed himself in a Paris jail in twenty twenty two while awaiting trial for rape accusations. What are some of the other highlights or lowlights? Well, here's what the the lamestream, downstream, bought and paid for media won't tell you. These documents exonerate President Trump of any suspicions he was somehow involved in Jeffrey Epstein's evil acts. We have testimony in the document showing Zero evidence Trump ever visited Epstein's home or his island. On the other hand, billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein once told one of his victims that Bill Clinton likes them young. This was sworn testimony. One of the victims said that Epstein had told her the former president liked girls young. So all in all, the uh, released Epstein documents weren't really the smoking gun we were hoping for. I mean, we're not going to likely see prominent politicians being escorted out of the U.S. Capitol building in leg irons, for example, as a result of this. What we really need to know about is the actual evidence, the videotape evidence that we know was recorded by Jeffrey Epstein himself in order to blackmail and control politicians and influencers. And that evidence was obtained by the FBI when they raided Epstein's homes in New York and Palm Beach. So the FBI has the video evidence of politicians, celebrities, influencers, bankers, both foreign and domestic, committing heinous acts on young girls, children, and we will likely never, ever see that evidence. The FBI will never, ever acknowledge they are in possession of that evidence. Why? Because the FBI and the DOJ, at least in its current iteration, will continue to use that evidence for their own purposes. In the same way Jeffrey Epstein and his and his paymasters in... Various other alphabet intel agencies around the world used it to control elected officials. Toronto Sun crime columnist Brad Hunter will be here in an hour two to uh, unpack all this. Those videotapes of powerful people doing unspeakable things to children, they explain a lot. They explain why it seems as though the world is ruled by psychopaths. Because it is. I'm not just talking about Vladimir Putin or the leaders of Hamas or insert the name of whatever ruthless dictator slash warlord in sub-Saharan Africa you want. I'm talking about here in North America as well. We're ruled by psychopaths. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying all or most or even any of our politicians made a little side trip down to Little St. James Island. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we're ruled by psychopaths. Now, maybe someone has something on our psychopaths. Maybe they're being blackmailed after being caught doing something horrible. Or maybe they're just wired that way. How do we explain, for example, why judges of the B.C. Supreme Court would rule that it is unconstitutional for police to warn drug users away from children's playgrounds? But that's exactly what they did. I know it seems like a joke. It sounds like a joke. But back on December 29th, 2023, B.C. Supreme Court Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson ruled that if police simply directed drug users found in playgrounds to go elsewhere, this would be a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It would do irreparable harm, he said. If drug users were warned away from public areas, even if that came at the expense of public parks filled with biohazardous drug paraphernalia and other social harms such as unpredictable behavior. In his ruling, he wrote, I accept that the attendant public safety risks are particularly concerning, given that many of the restricted areas and places are the act or uh, sorry, um, restricted areas and places in the act are frequented by seniors, people with disabilities, and families with young children. He acknowledges that. Huh. And who were the plaintiffs in this case? In other words, who were the people objecting to the police warning drug users away from playgrounds? The Harm Reduction Nurses Association. I kid you not psychopaths on our courts, psychopaths in our healthcare system. But of course, we already knew that. But sometimes they need to remind us so we don't ever, ever forget it. They're in charge. We're not. They can do whatever they want. And we should just lie down, roll over and be quiet. But not here. Not here on the Mighty News Talk Saga 960. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Thursday, January the 4th in the year of our Lord, 2024. Facto nonverba.
4: We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: All right, welcome back. So British Columbia uh, is in the midst of an insane experiment, they um, they've do decriminalized possession of uh, certain quantities of most illicit drugs, and you can use them in public. Well, <laughs> they shoot up on the uh, the subway platforms here in Toronto, but it's even worse in BC. But don't worry, that's all coming this way anyway. This is part of British Columbia's insane harm reduction strategy, which is has been uh predictably an abject failure but even as as crazy as they are british some british columbia politicians have at least their limits to this madness so they passed something called a playground amendment which means all right you want to shoot up heroin just don't do it under the jungle gym where children might be present that's you know setting the, lar- the bar pretty low i would say But not even that was acceptable to certain groups. Some rabid supporters of this uh, harm reduction insanity. So they took this amendment to court. And the chief justice of the British Columbia Supreme Court agreed with the plaintiffs and, and wrote in his judgment that if police were to direct drug users away from playgrounds, that would be a violation of their Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Dan Knight is an independent journalist and writer for the Opposition Network, and he joins me now. Dan, Happy New Year. Welcome to The Richard Sarrett Show. How are you?
0: Hey, good afternoon, Richard. How are we doing?
3: Very well. So uh, just explain this playground amendment. Um, who, who passed it? Exactly what the sort of the parameters of this playground amendment were?
0: Well, October fifteenth. So let's let's back it up. So back in the early 2023, uh, David Abbey passed a law saying that we're going to allow possession of small drug drug illicit drugs, um, basically taking tools away from police officers. Um, he faced major backlash from cities like uh, Coquitlam. Mayor West was a big uh said, said that was very no, no, we're not doing that, and decided that they were going to start passing bylaws to um, prevent people from doing hard drugs. In public areas And uh, David Eby was facing a huge Backlash So October, 20, uh, October 15th 2023 he decided that he was going to walk Back those policies and he decided that um, We're going to as you said We're going to stop drugs In playgrounds um, Judge Christopher Hickens sa- Decided that you know If we do that The drug users might uh, Might be more Cause more harm to the drug users um, they might overdose more, even though that we have sites like Insight uh, where they can actually inject it under a medical under medical supervision. Christopher Hicken says, allow these drug users to do drugs near the playgrounds because they might overdose more, even though Vancouver has been a staunch advocate since 2003 of safe injection sites. Um, so, I mean, imagine this a world where drug users and needles and prepar- paraphernalia in hand are free to occupy the same spaces our kids play. I mean, It's this is a reality in British Columbia, Richard, the courts and it's infinite wisdom rules that keeping drugs users away from playgrounds poses irreparable harm on them. Right. But what about the children, Richard? Exactly. Exactly. So um, as I understand it
3: previously, you know, before this uh, harm reduction strategy went into place, if you were to try and, you know, shoot up heroin or, you know, I don't know choose your illicit drug in 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 a public place or particularly in a playground, uh, the police would would arrest you. Um, Then. During this harm reduction experiment, the police were basically encouraged, well, direct the drug users to go elsewhere. Even that was seen as uh, being too heavy handed. The police aren't even allowed to direct the drug users away from the playground, let alone arrest them.
0: Well, here in, BC, here in Vancouver, especially, um, it, the police kind of uh, turn their backs on it. From my experience, they don't really do much um, to the drug users in Vancouver. Um, if you walk along the downtown east side, you'll see people just passed out on the streets, um, even in you know the, the higher neighborhoods like Yaletown. You'll see needles on the sidewalks all the time. People passed out on benches. Um, it's it's become quite um, a neat experience by the or experience or experiment by David Abbey and um, the city of Vancouver. Um, And and partly that has to do with the police lack tools. If they, they from the people that I've spoken to that don't wish to be named, they say that they'll arrest um, anyone that's, you know, that, that are passed out, but they will be out within the next hour. So, you know, it's, it's kind of an the police, it's like an exercise in futility.
3: Right. Now the plaintiffs in this case, the people that, that took the playground amendment, let's call it, to the the B.C. Supreme Court. This was the uh, the nurses, the harm reduction nurses association. They they took this to court and they won. So these are nurses that are part of this harm reduction strategy uh, that are objecting to the playground amendment and saying, no, don't even you can't even direct drug users to go away from from playgrounds because you know, you might cause them to overdose someplace else. Is, do I have I that?
0: it, yeah, that's correct. So it's, it's a faction within the nurses, uh, the nurses union that they actually have an, like um, some, uh, I would say that a majority of the nurses that are dealing with the drugs in British Columbia, they've been ideologically captured. Um, they believe in perpetuating um, harm. And what I mean by that is they would rather see you addicted to drugs rather than you cleaned up. It's, it's, they have this. Anyone I've spoken to is, is that when they with the nurses, they've basically said that it's OK for you to be addicted to drugs, um, but it's worse for you to, you know, the, the, the possibility of you overdosing is worse than us addressing the issue. It's more of a bandaged solution. Um, so what you're seeing is in the ideological capture of the nurses union being played out. Um, they believe in harm reduction. Um, a lot of them are being taught this in school. And what you're seeing this, this being played out from university into the nurses union. So what you're seeing is you're seeing universe, the university ideology or the ideology being transferred to the nurses union. And that's what's happening is that's what you're seeing here. All right, Dan, we'll
3: take a quick time out. Dan Knight, independent journalist and writer for the Opposition Network. Back with more of the Richard Sarah show right here on Saga 960 in three minutes
4: let's get back at it on Newstalk Talk Saga 960 a.m It's the Richard Sarah show all right welcome
3: back Dan Knight is here independent journalist and writer for the opposition Network we're talking about the BC Supreme Court Chief Justice back uh, just before Christmas 2023 ruled that it would be unconstitutional it would violate the charter rights and freedoms for police to tell drug users they can't shoot up in a playground. Can you imagine? This is the insanity that is happening in this country. And again, the plaintiffs in this case, those who were arguing against the so-called uh, playground amendment, were the Harm Reduction Nurses Association. And they wrote, It is apparent that public consumption and consuming drugs in the company of others is oftentimes the safest healthiest and or only available option for an individual. I'm sorry. This is the chief justice writing. This he's, he's agreeing with the harm reduction nurses association. It is apparent that public consumption and consuming drugs in the company of others, including children is often, that's my emphasis. There is oftentimes the safest, healthiest and or only available option for an individual According to the decision, the counter argument provided by lawyers acting for the province of BC was that the Harm Reduction Nurses Association was mostly making its case with anecdotal evidence, unsubstantiated conclusory statements, and layers of un- un- unattributed hearsay. H- Hinkson, the Chief Justice, accepted this might be true, so he instead based his irreparable harm conclusions largely on the assertions of a 2022 death review panel by the BC Coroner Service. Uh, they've been a long advocate, uh, vocal advocate for harm reduction, including a vast ramp up in the province's safer supply initiative, which has also been a complete disaster. Uh, Dan, are we seeing actual incidents where uh, – I know we've seen this in Toronto – where uh, um, drug paraphernalia, needles, spent needles being are being found in playgrounds and, and public parks, for example?
0: So – when in my experience of living downtown, I would uh, I used to live right in the heart of it. I would be walking down the bench, not a block away from a, a park, and there would be needles lined along the sidewalk um, to give you perspective. Um, in the downtown core, um, we have a needle exchange um, on Hamilton Street and Richards. And this is not three. This is three blocks away from a city park, a school a playground. Mm-hmm. So what, you, what you'll see and this has been well documented. Um, there's a Twitter user by the name of CD Vancouver. Um, he do- he lives right across the street from this, and he's been taking po- photos of like what happens on the daily. And there's night fights outside of this needle exchange. Um, there are people partying until two in the morning. Um, it's quite fun for those people, but for the people that live in those areas, it's it's quite horrifying. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people downtown, and they say that they're not they don't feel safe walking the streets, especially women.
3: So this uh, experiment—I called it this um, decriminalization of possession of illicit drugs, uh, this uh, safer supply. Um, I mean, does this have a best-before date on it? Is it going to expire at some point, or is this considered this is now the law of the land, and they're going to they're going to ride this uh,
0: out come hell or high water? Well, it's been it's been federally approved by. Uh- uh, the federal government, uh, Justin Trudeau. Um, otherwise, BC wouldn't be allowed to do this. So this is this is the law of the land. This is NDP's um, British Columbia, um, David Eby's British Columbia, and they basically think that this is the right way to do it. Um, they don't believe in um, the sanctity of the person. Um, you know, there's no onus. It, it, there's no onus on getting people clean. It's 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 okay to do drugs. We're going to treat it like drinking, like alcohol. Um, Richard, I don't know if you've had any friends that have done, um, opioids. Um, but I actually have, when I was going in high school, um, six of my friends were actually captured doing opioids. Two of them are passed away. Now, one of those people that passed away, they passed away from a uh, safe supply, uh, doing methadone and then they passed away in their sleep. So safe supply isn't 100% safe. So let's get that, but that's me. Let's be clear on that. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that the opioid, the people that got clean, those are the people that had to, that, that lived productive lives. Those are the ones that had intervention. Those are the ones that cleaned up their lives. The, the people that don't, that didn't, the, of those, that friend group, they're in jail. You know, they're, they're. And you can't tell me that these people are are living productive lives. These people that are living on the downtown east side, living in tents. You can't tell me that that's that's there's dignity in that. There's no dignity in that, Richard. There's there's none. So these people that are saying that this is harm reduction, this is harm perpetuation. It's sickening.
3: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, Hey, Dan, tell me a little bit about um, you. Write for the opposition network. Tell us, give us a little plug. What is that all about?
0: We're kind of an independent uh, news network. Um, we basically ba- write about federal and provincial politics here on the West Coast. Um, we look at committee meetings. Uh, a lot of what we, we found is a lot of committee meetings and a lot of politics don't get reported on here in uh, British Columbia. Um, we have the province and the Vancouver Sun. Um, when the foreign interference was going on, you couldn't even find a headline within those papers. So we've been writing about that in our, um, on our sub stack. Um, and we just report on on news that matters to Canadians, British Columbians, to people over in on the East Coast where you are there, Richard. So we kind of report on the committee meetings. During the Christmas break, we were talking about a ride can, the ride can contracts. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Richard.
3: Oh, yes. What a scandal that is.
0: You know, we were sitting around the Christmas table and I was asking like people, you know, a lot. We were there's 50 people in these parties and we were asked them. I was like, do you know anything about this? And they said, no. But they can tell you about Roe versus Wade, what's happening in the United States. They can tell you about Donald Trump. But there's no, it's, it's almost like the vacuum here in, in the, news, um, the news industry here in Canada. They, it's all consumed by the U.S. And it almost seems like the mainstream media is, is lazy. And oh. they, it's easier for them to report on, on American politics than it is here on Canadian politics. And the problem with that, Richard, is we have this rampant corruption that's going on in Canada. Um, It's disgusting. And I mean, if we go back to the ArriveCan contracts, that's $53 million that went out for ArriveCan. During the committee, which is the uh, OGO, um, the Operation Estimates Committee, Um, they had, um, I forget who it was, but they, they brought in someone and they basically said that they could replicate that app for $80,000.
3: I remember that. Yeah, we dude. have. Yeah. Dan, I, so I, we okay. have. Sorry, sorry, I apologize.
0: apologize. But, anyways. We're reporting on on those kind of stories and we want to amplify them for Canadians and that's the whole purpose of the opposition Network.
3: Well Dan, um, regular listeners to this program know how much I appreciate independent media and how um, I mean virtually all of my uh, my guests are from the independent you know n- news media. So uh, I applaud what you're doing. How do we find you on social media or uh, um, do you have a website?
0: I'm on the opposition. You can find me on the opposition network uh with Dan Knight uh, on Substack. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm Dan Knight MMA uh on Twitter. And uh, those are my uh two platforms.
3: Fantastic Dan. Uh I hope you'll come back and uh, speak with us again. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. See you later. My pleasure. Dan Knight. All right. When we come back, keeping an eye on your money, Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, drops by. He'll talk about a Globe and Mail story. The feds have increased their bu- the uh, federal bureaucracy by 40% under Trudeau. That story's next. Stay with us.
5: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
4: You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstock Saga, 960 AM.
7: Don't forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. The budget will balance itself.
6: The fastest rising interest rates in 30 years. Fastest inflation in four decades. When will the government realize the Canadians are out of money and the party's over?
3: All right, welcome back. You can place this in the uh, suspicions confirmed file. The uh, size of... Our federal public service is growing at an enormous rate. It just grew to a record high. Uh, This, according to a uh, report from the Public Service Commission of Canada, a 40 percent increase in the size of the federal bureaucracy under the crime minister. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Franco, how are you? Hey, happy new year, Richard. Happy new year. Happy new year. Um, Happy New Year, I guess, To It's a great uh, Happy New Year to all of the uh, the federal employees. So uh, a 40 percent increase since the liberals took over in 2015. Give us that in in actual numbers. What are we looking at?
6: Yeah, I mean, well, Trudeau hired an extra ninety eight thousand bureaucrats since taking over. Okay, he hired an extra ninety eight thousand bureaucrats, almost a 40 percent increase. Folks, ask yourself. Are you getting 40% more from the federal government? Well, unless you actually work for the government and are collecting that taxpayer-funded paycheck, I think the obvious answer for everyone is absolutely not. Now, look, and this is costing taxpayers huge time, okay? So when Trudeau took over, the cost of the federal bureaucracy every year was about $39 billion. Well, the latest years available from the PBO show that the cost of federal bureaucracy is now about $61 billion. So from $39 billion to $61 billion a year. Okay, so the the size and cost of the federal government under under Trudeau has ballooned. And I think the key takeaway here, folks, as we head into the new year is, well, look, no matter how much Christmas fluff you put on over the holidays, uh, maybe you can take away a little bit of joy knowing that you're still not as bloated as Trudeau's government.
3: There you go. Um, So just what is what actually or who uh, is considered a public employee. So for example, in our military, I don't know what how how large or how small our you know, our standing army is, our armed forces. Uh, and then you've got, you know, um, non-combatants in the military. So, I don't know, maybe 150,000 people all told in the in the armed forces in Canada. Maybe I don't know, I'm just pulling that out of my my hat here. But would that number be considered part of the federal bureaucracy?
6: Okay, so I'm looking at some of the numbers uh, in this report titled "Population of the Federal Public Service." This one is from the Treasury Board of Canada. Okay, so included in their numbers, they they post slightly different numbers. They say that now it's about 357,000 federal government employees, 357,000, a 40% increase since Trudeau took over. Um, they look at like the federal public service. They look at some of the separate agencies like the CRA. They look at the core bureaucrats. But what's excluded from that 357,000 are, like, the minister's staff, Mm -hmm. um, RCMP regular force members, RCMP civilian force members, and the Canadian forces. Those Uh, are not included in that data.
3: Ah, okay. Um, Then it's even worse than I thought. I mean, because... We're, we're looking at a federal, if you include every, all federal employees, including the military and RCMP, and I don't begrudge, I mean, our military should be, we should have higher numbers there. Uh, but we're looking at about, what, half a million people in this country are uh, employed by the federal government alone. Uh, so I would imagine yeah. that's our that's the largest employer in Canada, right? The federal government?
6: Oh, I, I would imagine so. I, I mean, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but I mean, they're employing, what, north of 400,000 people. So it's a huge cost, and it's a cost directly to taxpayers. And why this really matters, I mean, the obvious one is, is just how much money the federal government consumes, right? Uh, I spoke at the beginning of the segment, they're costing taxpayers $61 billion a year. Well, folks that is more than half of the government's operating spending. And what that means is that when the government's day-to-day spending, half of it is consumed by the bureaucracy, right? So, you you know, on the show we talk a lot about the crazy amount of waste, right? Like the Governor General dropping $71,000 on limos in Iceland, or Trudeau, you know, spending $61,000 on hotel rooms in Manhattan, or that $6,000 per night, now infamous hotel room stay uh, during the Queen's funeral. If we're ever going to balance this budget, turn that $40 billion deficit into a balanced budget, if we're ever going to start chipping away at the $1 trillion debt, if we're ever going to start cutting taxes, whether it's Trudeau or another government, they're going to have to get hard on the bureaucracy, okay? They're going to have to do it. Because here's what's been going on over the last couple of years. Not only has Trudeau hired 98,000 additional bureaucrats since coming to power, but over the last couple of years... He also handed out 800,000 pay rates. During, since the beginning of 2020 through 2022, 800,000 federal employees received a raise. Now, that matters for two reasons, okay? Number one, it means the vast majority of federal employees not only received one raise, but had multi- multiple raises. And number two, they were taking multiple raises when their neighbors in the private sector lost their job, took huge pay cuts. Maybe lost their business or had to take out a huge line of credit. Okay, so while so many Canadians have been struggling and are continuing to struggle, it's just gravy train over there in Ottawa.
4: Yeah,
3: and uh, something we also uh, tend to forget is that when these um, hundreds of thousands of employees finally hang them up, hang them up, uh, we're on the hook, you know, for their for their retirement for their for their pensions. That's a long term legacy costs that we uh, we also need to uh, account for?
6: Oh, you absolutely do, right? You have to talk about the pensions. You have to talk about all these other types of benefits. I mean, the fact that government employees in Canada uh, also have more job security, take more days off, they're more likely to get a the golden defined benefit pension, right? Not just like a matching RRSP contribution, but a golden defined benefit pension. And when you add up all of these different types of benefits, the pensions, the bonuses, is the salary, folks. The average compensation for a government employee in Ottawa is now north of one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. Wow. north of one hundred and twenty-five k average compensation. You know what the average salary was in Canada last year 40, or in twenty twenty-two? Sorry, it was like sixty-four k.
3: Sixty-four. I
6: think it was like sixty-four k. The last time yep. I ran the numbers, it was in the sixty-four k. it shows the huge disparity between us and them.
3: Franco, always appreciate your insights. Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Taxpayer.com. Check out the newsroom when we come back in defense of women. Stay with us.
4: Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
3: Hey, why is it every time you walk into the bank, you're constantly bombarded with woke propaganda? And what would happen if you called your financial advisor and told your advisor you really think about the state of our nation and the need to protect your capital? The financial advisors at the big banks and the other large financial services companies aren't looking to partner with conservative patriots like you. So why are you partnering with them and letting them manage your your hard-earned cash? Rocklink is a patriotic and thoroughly conservative Canadian company that's aligned with your values and they understand your concerns. They align with my values and my concerns. And that's why I am now a client of Rocklink Investment Partners. So let them show you how to develop a financial plan that works for you and your family. And it's not filled with all the liberal talking points. Give Rocklink a call at 905-631-5462, 905-631-5462, or email them at info at rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a c info at rocklink.com rocklink r-o-c-k-l-i-n-c Right, welcome back. Now this is potentially some, uh, some good news on the face of it, it looks like good news. The president of the International Association of Athletics Federations. That's a big international sporting association, obviously. The president, Seb Co, is vowing, in a recent interview, to protect the female category. Well, again, sounds promising. Let's find out. Coach Blade, Linda Blade, is a sports performance coach and co-author of Unsporting, How Transactivism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. Happy New Year, Coach. How are you?
1: Happy New Year, Richard. Can you hear me?
3: I can. Yes. All yes. right. Yes. So uh, Seb Co. Uh, vowing to protect f- the female category. I think he said something to the extent that if I don't do this, there will never be a female medal winner again in women's sports. So um, it sounds like a good thing. I mean, did he go far enough? What's happening
2: here?
1: Yeah, he's right. In fact, I'm so appreciative of uh, World Track and Field President Seb Co. He showed a lot of leadership uh, this year. Back in March, uh, the World Athletics uh, put out their new policy Saying that at the elite level, no male no male athlete should compete ever in a female in a female elite um, competition. The problem is that in the midst of always in his interviews, he says that there shouldn't be any problem with including males boys in girls sports at the grassroots level, or at least he he implies that that would be okay. And as far as we're concerned, uh, women in the sport and in the struggle to preserve women's sports, that's just not okay because you will not get elite female athletes coming through the system if they walk away because of unfairness at the grassroots level. And, and this has been a problem with a lot of the perceptions uh, with these global sports organizations. Even when they make a ruling in our favor, they sort of throw the dog a bone and say, well, oh, but maybe at the grassroots level, it's okay. Or at the school level, it's okay. It's never okay.
3: Well, uh, let me see, uh, just to kind of play not even devil's advocate. I mean, yeah. we're talking about, let's say, t-ball, baseball, when you've got like right. kids or soccer, uh, little boys and girls uh, that are five, six, seven years old. Uh, hmm. Do you have any objection to boys and girls competing against each other at that level?
1: Well, the, the, the problem is, OK, so little boys do still have an advantage. But here's what I would say, whether it's phys ed, uh, or practice sessions within sports, with its recreational sport, where you have mixed teams. Like, there's a lot of contexts where girls and boys, and even when we were post-puberty, where we would train males and females together for fun. Uh, like, my coach used to send the girls off first, and the boys chase us down and make us all run harder. I mean, there's a lot of contexts in which you can mix the sexes in training and, and um, fun play. But we're talking when we talk sport. We're just talking serious competition where you're competing for the prizes, right? Uh, and that that's where things get dicey because uh, even pre-puberty boys have an enormous advantages in some respects. Not so much in the running and kicking and soccer and but upper body strength is still you know fifteen percent better than girls for the most part. It is just a huge difference. So when you get to serious competition, then you have to make provisions for distinction.
3: So is when Se- Seb Coe again president um, of the um, International track Association? Track and field. Yeah, it's track and field. Thank you. It's a shorter version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> track and field. Yeah. Um, he, he, when he says it's okay at the grassroots level, is he talking about? Um, is he is he referring to trans? Uh, gendered so-called um, athletes. Is he talking about men or sorry boys who identify as girls, or is he just talking about boys and girls?
1: He's talking about transgender. The 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 uh, when when the interviewer was asking, he specified the transgender situation, and there's a lot of problems because we don't really believe that you should be telling a child they're transgender in the first place. No, agreed. Um, and. The problem I was having when I was president of Athletics Alberta is that the provincial level is where the mandates are for sports at, you know, on the ground. And so if the international leaders are giving a nod uh, to national organizations to say, like let's say Athletics Canada, in my case, um, national track and field should then be pushing inclusion of, of the woke kind at the grassroots level, then it's a the national uh, Ottawa telling the provinces how to run their little kids' sports and, right. in a way that would disadvantage girls, and and this was where the rub happened because I was standing up for athletics in Alberta and saying, "No, we separate right from the beginning. If you're going to go on the athlete pathway, separate from the recreation, Got it. the exactly. athlete pathway, you're going to have to know what is expected from the beginning. You don't find a certain time like 12 years of age where you suddenly split the boys and girls up. You have to say, if you're in a competitive sport, you're going to compete with according to your biological sex. And that's just how it's going to work. It doesn't matter what identity you have.
3: Right, right. And as you I, I think if I'm hearing your argument correctly, if this is allowed to continue and that is men competing against women, uh, mm-hmm. In sports, by the time they get to that elite international level, many of these women will become, you know, frustrated uh, and and uh, discouraged, and will quit anyway. You won't have any more biological women at the elite international level from from Canada.
1: Exactly, and so that's what happened. Like when in twenty twenty, world rugby said no no males in the elite women's rugby just because of even the safety factor and the injury and neck and back injuries. But then a rugby candidate said, nope, nope, we're going to still allow males to self-identify. Well, where do they think their elite women come from? You're going to, you know, basically um, dilute the field. You, you just won't have all of the talented women coming through the system that you normally would. And we know that numbers dictate talent because you never know who is the one that's going to be the superstar later. You can't always predict. And so if you diminish the number of females competing, you're literally going to exclude a superstar once in a while.
3: Exactly. All right. Coach Blade, sports performance coach, co-author of Unsporting, How Transactivism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. Linda, you have a a wonderful – well, we'll we'll talk again, obviously, very soon. But uh, happy new year to you and uh, all the best. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Richard. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: All right, hour two coming up. Scott McKay, author of "Racism, Revenge, and Ruin," it's all Obama. We'll talk about the uh, recent resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay, and uh, also Brad Hunter from the Toronto Sun. We'll talk about some of the key takeaways from the unsealed Epstein documents. Back with more of the Richard Seret Show right after this timeout on Saga Nine Sixty. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show.
5: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to...
3: I ask you not only to win the battle, but to win the
4: war.
6: I'm kidding. We're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this cutway through her eyes, if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade
2: of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order. You're out of order. The whole trial is out of order. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, and you.
3: And welcome to hour two of the Richard Sarret Show. And if you missed hour one, you missed a lot. But don't despair; still, plenty of great programming coming your way this hour, including guest columnist with Western Standard, Francis Crescia. Interesting piece the uh, last uh, day or two about um, well whether we're sleepwalking towards World War III. Uh, Brad Hunter, Toronto Sun crime columnist, will be here and we'll talk about some of the key takeaways from the unsealed Epstein uh, documents. Uh, A couple days ago, we were talking about the uh, resignation of disgraced Harvard president Claudine Gray. And uh, amidst her horrible testimony before the Education Committee in the House of uh, Representatives, where she she couldn't bring herself to... um, denounce the cries for uh, genocide on her campus. She couldn't bring herself to say that uh, calling for genocide is contrary to the Harvard conduct, uh, Code of Conduct. Oh, it all depends on the context, she said. Then, of course, there were the, the numerous and mounting um, allegations of plagiarism. So she resigned. And uh, in her resignation letter, she wrote, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent. A new, oh Sorry, old joke. I know, the Gettysburg Address. She plagiarized it. Uh, but she did go after her critics, claiming they were racist. Wow. How trite, how predictable. Scott McKay, author of Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, It's All Obama, joins us once again with his thoughts. Scott, how are you? Happy New Year.
5: Hey, Richard. Happy New Year to you.
3: Uh, so I guess no, no huge surprise that she would go. Uh, she would she would play the race card. Oh sure. Uh, when she resigned, what what else? Uh, what, what are the other takeaways
5: here? Well, um, the interesting takeaway is uh, she resigned, but not from Harvard. She's going to remain a professor there. Mm. And, uh, so her salary is going to be somewhere north of uh, eight hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow, um, which is pretty good comp for a martyr. Uh, I would say, Um, you know, and and they are making her a martyr. I mean, if you go on X and you see what the, you know, Ibram X. kindies of the world uh, Mm -hmm. are saying, I mean, everybody's, it's a a racist lynch mob that has gone after uh, Claudine Gay. um, Because the act of checking up on her scholarship and researching the things that she's written, that act itself is racist. In other words, you know, to hold anyone accountable for things that they may have done, if it's a black person, is a racist act. Um, I can't I can't even begin to, to, to express how damaging this is from a cultural standpoint. Um, you know, I, but I don't know that it needs to be taken that serious, Right. Like these are these are people who are, you know, D.E.I. Um, uh, me- members of the D.E.I. cacistocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they shouldn't be taken serious. I mean, Ibram X. Kendi needs people laughing in his face every time he opens his mouth.
3: So the media in lockstep, predictably, uh, are using the this the phraseology. They're called they're calling. They're saying the conservatives have weaponized plagiarism. How, does, how exactly do you weaponize plagiarism? I mean, plagiarism <laughs> used to be a pretty big deal, especially at right. places like
5: Harvard. Well, for for the last couple of years, if you pay attention to the legacy corporate media in America, what you've been getting is these, you know, Republicans pounce stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like every time, you know, there are new uh, allegations on Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, uh, you know, debacle or the Biden corruption or, you know, any of these other things uh, that are damaging to the left. Everything is reported by the legacy corporate media as a Republicans pounce on allegations of X, right? It's not the allegations of X which are important. It's the fact that those nasty Republicans are gonna make a thing out, out of it. And and they you know they've completely uh, turbocharged that in the case of Claudine Gay, right? I mean, it's it's like, no, she's the Empress with no clothes. We've we've proven that she's like there is no scholarship. She never deserved to get anywhere near that, you know, where she is, regardless of her race. And this is all—oh, it's a partisan thing. There was an AP piece that that hit this week, and it was all about how, um, you know, it, well, it wasn't her academic peers that had a problem with plenty. K. It was those nasty conservatives and Christopher Rufo, who you know is a is a, a white colonial scalper because he he he, uh, he he posted something on Twitter that we didn't like, and it's like, well, how how does how does Claudine Gay's entire academic reputation falling into ruin based on things that should have been vetted a long time ago? How is that somehow proper grounds for an attack on Christopher Rufo, who is merely calling out, you know, the rot at the center of Harvard? And it, this is somewhat reminiscent of, if you'll recall, the 2019 impeachment of Donald Trump. All right. right. The, what did they impeach Trump for? They impeached Trump for trying to generate an investigation of Joe Biden's bribery of, of, uh, you know, or being bribed, taking a bribe from the Ukrainians to kill uh, off the career of this prosecutor that was investigated. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, but wait, you can't do things that we don't like that might hurt us. That would make you a terrible person. And, uh, you know, I None of this persuades anybody. They're, they're done trying to persuade people of anything at all. Um, you know, and I'll, this is kind of where I'll plug racism, revenge and ruin. My book that I wrote, this is Barack Obama's doing like he's the guy that kind of brought this into being that I'm going to deflect everything, whether it's on the basis of race or some sort of identity politics that keeps you away from the truth of who I am. He's now got the entire left doing this on every single basis they can. And it's, it's with the Claudine Gay thing, it has gotten to the point of abject absurdity. Um, and maybe hopefully it'll, it's a tactic that'll finally implode on itself. Uh, I, I love the uh, the headline.
3: Uh, I, I don't know if you're responsible for the headline from the Publius National, our good friends at Publius National Post. Uh, Gay gone at Harvard, Obama and Hamas lose two leaders in one day. Is that you?
2: <laughs> no,
3: that's not me. But it's <laughs> but it's awfully
5: good, isn't it?
3: It's yeah, it's absolutely uh, apropos. It's it's spot on. Um, so we had this big Supreme Court uh, decision um, basically shooting down affirmative action in in Ivy League college admissions at places like Harvard. Correct. Um, Does that not also apply to their hiring practices?
5: That's a very good question, isn't it? You would think it would. Um, I would guess that somebody would have to sue on that using the 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 Harvard decision as their uh, as the legal basis for a discrimination complaint, but I can't imagine that won't be coming. Now, the problem there is, are there any conservatives or non leftists left in these elite institutions uh, who are willing to fight that fight, knowing that it will, uh, you know, it'll it'll make them the stinky kid in the class uh, if they do. Um, you know, and then that's the question is, you know, is the victory for the left so complete in these institutions that they can't be saved at all? And I don't know the answer. Now, college uh, presidents, university presidents,
3: are they typically um, known for their work? In acad- well, I, I know it sounds like a silly question. Are they, I guess what I'm saying is, are, are they
5: academics primarily, first and foremost, or are they administrators? I think it depends on what kind of institution you're talking about. Like, for example, if it's a flagship in- institution for a state. Let's say, um, you know, oftentimes they'll take somebody from outside, outside academia to run it. I mean, I, you know, I remember David Boren had been a U.S. senator from Oklahoma and they made him the president of, of, of OU. Um, and uh, Robert Gates, who was Obama's defense secretary, he, he ran Texas A&M for a couple of years. And those guys were not academics. They were people that were widely recognized as you know good leaders and administrators. But for an institution like a Harvard or a Stanford or a Duke or some of these, I, I think they're kind of locked into the academic side of it, right? which you know, may be a mold they're going to have to break out of if they want to end the, I think, rapid decline in prestige that so many of these institutions are, are, um, are, are seeing. And in Harvard's case, it has to be a catastrophic decline at this point, given all this bad press.
3: Well, I, I ask that because I'm I was I'm trying to figure out which of those Claudine Gay was. What was her her, you know, primary uh, her key forte, if you will, or uh, area of strength? Because um,
5: she, I mean, she's, she's Paul, a she's an yeah, she's an academic. She's a, she's a widely a, she's published uh, side professor. But she hasn't she's, published a whole lot. No. I mean, that like that's what makes this so, um, you know, almost comic. In, in a it's absurdity. This is somebody who's never written a book. There's a there's a meme out there, and it, it's the cover of a book supposedly written by Claudine Gay, and it's like the three keys to success by Claudine Gay. I've and the three, the three keys are the control <laughs> key, C, and V. <laughs> <laughs> it's utterly hilarious. It, it um, took me a while to figure that one out, but eventually. Well, and, I, and I knew right away. I was like, well, this is not right because <laughs> she's never written a book. How could this possibly be a thing? She's written like a dozen or so articles that are covered in plagiarism, uh, uh, plagiarism and, and the allegate people keep looking up things that she's written in those articles and finding more and more stuff that she copied. You know, the question is whether any of this scholarship is actually hers. Um, and yet, you're right; she does come from that academic background. It's just she's been elevated. You know, on the basis of DEI and not merit, which is what makes this such a bright line controversy that people can sink their teeth. Is this likely
3: uh, uh, to to cause some sort of a domino effect, uh, maybe not at Harvard, but at other uh, institutions? Are they going to start no. serious? No,
5: I think re- I think in red states, you're going to start to see a lot of like state legislators and you know people who control the funding of some of these universities. Um, I think they, you may very well see, uh, some investigation done like, okay, do we have a Claudine Gay problem at, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever Oklahoma state or, or, you know, uh, Tennessee Martin or somewhere. And, you know, so now, especially if you have, you know, red state, state legislators looking for something that, um, you know, might make a name for themselves, this could be a wide open field for, uh, for investigation. And, uh, a chance to uh, to make some viral moments on video at, at you know committee hearings and such. I would not be surprised if this year was spent outing a lot of these people. And what? incidentally, I think the left probably sees that as well, which is why there is so much preemptive screaming about all oh, these racist white mobs who are going to go get people, and they're going to use plagiarism as uh, as their weapon. And it's like. Oh so this is what you're worried about right um so i you know i don't know it wouldn't surprise me if you saw a lot of that That's
3: ultimately, I guess, going to be her legacy. It's delicious when you think about it. Her legacy will be her name is attached to the situation. Do we have a Claudine Gay situation? In other words, do we have a anti-Semite plagiarist in our midst? Well, good on her. She'll wear it well, I hope. Scott McKay, author of Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, It's All Obama, and uh, also... Uh, his work can be found in the pages of the conservative mainstay, The American Spectator. How do we get a copy of "Racism, Revenge, and Ruin," Scott?
5: Uh, it's on Amazon. Just uh, uh, you know, look for "Racism, Revenge, and Ruin," or or look for my name, and uh, and you'll find it. Uh, Calamo Press is the publisher's website. You might be able to get it a little cheaper if you go to calamopress.com. dot com. Um, Barnes and Noble has it. Most most of the places you can buy books have uh, have the uh, uh, have the book online. Fantastic, Scott. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Thanks,
3: Richard. You too. All right, Brad Hunter is next. Toronto Sun crime columnist will unpack some of the key takeaways from the unsealed Epstein documents. That's next. Stay with us.
4: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Welcome back.
3: At long last, the notorious, greatly anticipated Epstein documents, court documents were unsealed last night. And uh, here to walk us through some of the key takeaways, Brad Hunter, Toronto Sun, crime columnist, author of Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy, the real life killer clown and cold blooded murder. Shocking true stories of killers and psychopaths. Brad, welcome back. How are you?
2: Very well. Thanks, Richard. How are you?
3: I'm well. Well, I haven't, you know, attempted to sort of slog through the entire document, but just sort of reading commentaries and summations online, my my feeling is this is nowhere near sort of the smoking gun, sort of the gotcha document that we thought it might be. What are your thoughts?
2: No, it it, it really wasn't. I mean, many of the names that have you know, come out or whatever. We already knew them from, you know, various earlier reporting and other court documents that had been released. Uh, but what, uh, I mean, I think what, uh, you know, and it's in my column for tomorrow's paper is, is that there is, there is you know, uh, you know, small tidbits and it, an overarching view of the whole vile Epstein sex trafficking uh, apparatus is becoming a little clearer, and, and uh, I mean, David Copperfield is one of the newer names and he doesn't come off looking particularly good because the summation there is, is that he apparently had some knowledge that, you know, Epstein was recruiting young girls for sex who were then in turn uh recruiting other young girls for sex as sort of a a sexual Ponzi scheme. Uh um as as it were and he knew and he said nothing. He didn't call anybody, didn't confront Epstein about it, and I think that you're going to find a lot of these people with, you know, bigger bank accounts than you and I, they knew and they did nothing. They chose to do nothing.
3: Yeah, um, if I remember correctly, uh, so this, you know, world famous illusionist David Copperfield shows up at Epstein's place, I think it was in Palm Springs or was it in New York? Um, I can't Palm Beach, Palm, Palm Beach. Beach, Palm Beach, right. And uh, apparently, according to one witness's testimony, he asked her, she also said, I think she was, she was, um, uh, you know, she, you know, she asked, he asked her whether she was aware of young girls being used basically to recruit other young girls and it's part of this sex scheme. So he was, he was asking the question like he was doing his own little what investigation. But as you say, there's no indication that he, you know, took that knowledge anywhere, did anything about it, confronted Epstein. So yeah, that'll be uh, interesting. Another name that, that, um, that comes up, um, is governor, former governor of New Mexico, the late, uh, Bill Richardson, uh, who died last fall. Um, but again, um, You know, he's been reported to have visited uh, Epstein's ranch and so forth, but no real connection there to any illicit acts or or is there?
2: Well, um, uh, Virginia Guy Frey had said that she was forced to have sex with with Richardson. Ah, And I mean, you know, what uh, what? what was going on and all this, I mean, it's very, very, uh, difficult to sort the whole thing out. It's be, you know, at one point you, you know, you see, it's a bit of a bomb, but you know, the fact is is that probably you're going to see 90% of the names that have been released. Remember only, I think 45 documents have been released thus far. Uh, and, and there's more to come in the coming days. Um, that most of these people are just flunkies. Now, you know, they're just, you know, they're associates, they're gardeners, they're janitors. They're the kid that sold Jeffrey Epstein a coffee at Starbucks. That's what a lot of it is. But there are illuminating details. I mean, Prince Andrew, uh, again, looks even worse, Uh, (laughs) you you know, you know, and some of these guys, I and mean, there's nothing that's really sticking to former President Clinton or uh, Donald Trump either. Yeah, so. would it be, uh, yeah, would it know, be fair to things.
3: say that this 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 document uh, exonerates Trump?
2: I, I would uh, I would say uh that uh that uh, the probably i think i'm getting i getting i'm getting the picture and I've been following this fairly long time that uh that you know that trump's fairly clean in all this and and as and for the most part you know so is clinton um so you're not gonna get them there but you know, you you also have all sorts of other things. Mossad coming up. Uh, you know, the former prime minister visiting Epstein thirty six times. Ehud. Uh, that's you know, Ehud Barak, right? Yeah, Ehud Barak, the former prime mean, minister. That's Israel. correct. Yeah, and and I mean, this sort of stuff is the stuff that fuels um, you know conspiracy theorists because you know I'm not a big believer in conspiracy theorists theories, but nonetheless, you know. There it is. You have to, you know, there's some eyebrow raising sort of things, the people who are connected and and, you know, a creative person might go out and connect the dots. <laughs> you
5: know?
3: uh, Brad, we'll, we'll take a quick time out. We'll take a quick time. i come back and uh, a few minutes more and discuss the uh, unsealed Epstein documents. Brad Hunter, Toronto Sun crime columnist, author of Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy. Back with more in a moment.
4: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
3: Welcome back. Brad Hunter stays with us from the Toronto Sun. He's their crime columnist, author of Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy and Cold-Blooded Murder, available wherever good books are sold and at Amazon. We're talking about the uh, unsealed Epstein documents, which uh, happened last night. Uh, Just kind of unpacking it, uh, the late Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico, um uh as previously was reported, had visited Epstein's ranch, the Zorro Ranch in New Mexico, and he denied the accusations made by uh one of the victims, Jufre, um Victoria Robin Jufre, who previously on un- in an unsealed deposition said she was directed to have sex with him. He called the accusation completely false. Uh David Copperfield, as uh Brad mentioned earlier, also mentioned Uh, In her deposition, Johanna Soberg said she had dinner with the uh, magician and he asked her whether she was aware that girls were getting paid to find other girls. In other words, he was trying to figure out what's going on here, but he um, he didn't seem to do anything about it. Uh, So that'll be interesting to see what happens uh, to David Copperfield in the aftermath of this. Um, Alan Dershowitz, uh, we, we already know his name has come up previously. Um, anything new in the in the documents re- re- relating to Alan Dershowitz, Brad?
2: Ah, uh, no. He uh, he he comes off as uh, basically as innocent. The other thing is is that you have to remember that uh, that it was Dershowitz was you know very 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 strongly pushing for these documents to be unsealed because. You know he didn't have you know any fears that he would be implicated in any in any uh, sexual wrongdoing uh so I mean he's kind of out of uh out of uh the picture on this sort of thing but there i mean there's others and you know they've all you know there's been a number of billionaires uh Dubin, who's a, a was a longtime friend of him and his wife were longtime friends of uh, of Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, you know, he has been has been implicated, says he didn't do anything wrong. Uh you know, um the you know, the the CEO of Hyatt Hotels, same thing. Uh, no, I didn't do anything wrong. So, you know, I, it, it depends where this all goes from the cops, right? So, you know, how much they want to pursue it. But this appears to be, you know, um, a big, uh, big appetite to go after these people uh, Um, and and to see where the investigation leads them. I mean, uh, a friend of mine had said that it was amazing of how much, uh, you know how this story's really exploded once again—not since Epstein died or since uh, uh, Maxwell was uh, sent to prison. You know, and it brings a, a lot of joy for people. <laughs> people, right. I think.
3: Right. There were some names that remained redacted. In one case, one of Epstein's victims claimed she was sent to have sex with, and then the name was redacted. Are we likely to see that name unredacted in the next? Trench of documents uh, released, or why was that name protected?
2: Well, that name was protected, though. The one name was for the woman was is that she lives in a, uh, quote, unquote, culturally conservative country and that, you know, that, you know, her whatever she did. And I, I don't know whether she was a villain or a uh, or a victim, uh, you know, could uh, lead to, uh, you know, serious health problems in said conservative country. Uh, But, you know, we don't really we don't really know too much more about her. I mean, they haven't indicated whether victim or, uh, as I said, uh, victimizer. Right.
3: This was, uh, I think, referred to as Jane Doe 107 or something. This was the person that filed with the court to to uh, basically delay the release. So this Jane Doe has, what, 30 days or something to prove that she would be, in fact, in danger if her name were unsealed. Uh, there's a That's lot of- right. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you um, just finally, you know, the evidence. The evidence exists that uh, obviously young girls were raped and brutalized and so forth. It's videotape evidence. We know that it exists. Probably, I'm guessing, the FBI uh, acquired it when they raided Epstein's home. I mean, this is how he made his money, right? He didn't make it as a hedge fund manager. He made it. Through blackmail, the videotapes, well,
2: they, ex- they exist. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I mean, his brother, uh, his brother was quoted as saying in the New York Post later today that he didn't, you know, he he didn't hear, I mean, he picked up lots of tittle tattle, but he didn't know about, uh, any videotapes. However, uh, your, I mean, your friend, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, she says there are videotapes and that, um, you know, um, uh, you know, that there are videotapes and that they, uh, that, uh, they, you know, show people in compromising positions, whether, <laughs> whether they do or not. I mean, you know, all of this stuff is still, you know, a bit of a mystery. It's almost like going to Missouri and saying, Show me, you know, right. you right. want to see it. Well, do you believe that those videotapes exist and do you think we'll ever, ever? Uh,
3: at least get an acknowledgement from the FBI that they have them in their possession and they are investigating?
2: Uh, I don't know whether we'll ever see that, but I mean, I do believe, uh, you know, I do believe that, in fact, that, you know, tapes exist. I mean, uh, uh, Epstein's numerous mansions uh, were wired up the wazoo. So, I mean, it stands to reason that a guy like this, a guy so sexually driven, would want to record his conquest and whatever the hell he was doing. So I think there is. Yes, I think uh, I think there are there are tapes. Brad
3: Hunter, Toronto Sun, crime columnist, author of Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy, the real life killer clown and cold blooded murder, shocking true stories of killers and psychopaths. Brad, always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Terrific. Thanks, Richard. Have a great weekend.
3: You too. All right. When we come back, sleepwalking towards World War Three. Stay
4: with us. Just having a little chinwag on The Richard Serra Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m.
3: Back. You know, we don't always have the opportunity to choose the people we work with, uh, the people that share our values. But when we can, we should. So stop working with woke banks and big financial institutions that don't share any of our values and give our friends at Rocklink a call. Rocklink is proudly Canadian and proudly conservative. They offer a genuinely unique investment approach in the crowded money management space, and they love working with like-minded folks that share their passion for ending the liberal and woke insanity that's destroying our country. So give Rocklink a call at 905-631-5462, 905-631-5462. I did. Now I'm a client, and I'm not looking back. You can also email them at info at rocklink.com, info at rocklink.com. That's Rocklink spelled with a C, Rocklink. R O C K L I N C. All right, and I've been reading about um, all of these uh, tech giants and multi billionaires, and they uh, they're building doomsday bunkers, like Mark Zuckerberg, something like uh, spending over like a hundred million dollars to build this huge underground survival bunker. And um, OpenAI's Sam Altman doing the same thing. What's going on here? What are they preparing for? What do they know that we don't know? Well, I think we can guess. Francis Crescia is a guest columnist with the Western Standard. He's been uh, on the program before. He joins us once again to talk about his latest column, Sleepwalking Towards World War III. Francis, Happy New Year. Welcome back.
7: Happy New Year, Richard. Thank you. I
3: know you mentioned Zuckerberg and Sam Altman in, in your um, uh, in your piece here. Um, is, this, is this how widespread is this? I mean, these are just two examples. But are you also hearing about others that are uh, you know, the elites that are preparing for something big?
7: Well, at any time, I mean, half of the Silicon Valley elites have a bunker of some kind. So half of them are preparing for a doomsday scenario or the breakdown of civilization. Zuckerberg himself spent $170 million on the real estate in Hawaii and now is investing 100 additional million to build this 5,000-square-foot subterranean bunker that will have everything from food, water, energy needs, has 30 bedrooms, 30 bathrooms, uh, doors made of steel, reinforced with concrete in between, So he's preparing for the uh, worst-case scenario, and there's others. I mean, Sam Altman, the OpenAI founder, he himself is preparing for a doomsday, collecting guns, masks. Steve Hoffman, the CEO of Reddit, doing similar kind of things. So many of them are uh, preparing themselves for what appears worldwide geopolitically is a hot powder keg ready to be ignited. So
3: what in your estimation is the is that flashpoint going to be is it russia ukraine is it china taiwan is it the MidEast? east is it, a, is it a um i don't know a combination of all three Where do you see it breaking out
7: sure i mean the flashpoint will be uh, china taiwan uh in, in terms of background uh, russia is moving closer and closer to china So that makes it one heck of a combination in terms of natural resources and manufacturing capacity. But I think the window on Taiwan is shrinking. And the Communist Party, even as far as two days ago, uh, President Xi said he is committed to bringing Taiwan into the fold, back to the motherland. And a few years ago, actually two years ago, at the 100th anniversary Uh, celebration of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi was very clear. He said China would no longer be bullied, subjugated by anyone, anywhere. And anyone felt that they would do so, they'd have their heads smashed against a great wall of steel. So um, that's the big flashpoint. In terms of a little bit more background, we can go back historically to the 5th century BC general historian Thucydides, who came up with the idea that he actually studied warfare among the, the Greek warring states, Athena, Sparta, Spartica, and so on. And he said that there was a, when there's a main hegemon and a rival is coming up, that the rival and the hegemon will inevitably clash. and you know, And scholars have looked at this in the past. They've looked at different uh, different similar situations and the majority of the time has left as uh, has resulted in a major war. Uh,
3: I guess it'll it depends then on the timing of China's decision to take back Taiwan. Um, the timing, whether it coincides with the election. Uh, if Trump wins, how would he respond versus Biden and how he responds um, what, do you th- what do you think the, the actual timing will be? Will, it, will China and Xi choose to do it while Biden is still in office? Will he, will he risk? Um, I don't know. What are the risks if he waits until, let's say, Trump takes office?
7: Sure. Very good question. I, I mean, I think Xi uh, is trying to figure out, or the Communist Party, really the stability of the, uh, China's economic system. It is presently going through a deflationary period. They're, they're, uh, the, the central government is um, loading up more stimulus to maintain some kind of growth. They're still projecting roughly 5% GDP growth. So I think that plays into the equation. The election itself, if the um, independent uh, party wins and becomes more vociferous about independence, I think that might speed up the timeline. If the Komintang were to win, that's a little more friendly towards China, Uh, That itself could actually help uh, settle things down a little bit. If if Trump were to come in, I mean, anything can happen. I mean, he's a bit of a wild card in terms of foreign policy. He can be an isolationist or very aggressive. Uh, I think, generally speaking, China is trying to figure out how stable is its own country, how well can its military execute, and how quickly can they get the job done?
3: Right, right. Um, because for for Xi, this is his legacy, right? And he has to get this done before his present term within the Communist Party expires. Um, there's a lot on the line for him personally. He sort of made this his his central theme that he's going to reunite China with with Taiwan. We'll take a quick time out. Uh, guest columnist at the Western Standard, Francis Crescia, is with us. Are we sleepwalking towards World War Three? More of our conversation right after this time out.
4: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: Francis Crescia stays with us, guest columnist at the Western Standard, and we're talking about uh, the possibility of World War III. His latest opinion piece is called Sleepwalking Towards World War III. And the flashpoint, uh, he believes, will be uh, China's military invasion of Taiwan. Uh, Are we talking about a full on shooting war um, uh, or or will China simply demonstrate an overwhelming um, military presence and and Taiwan will acquiesce?
7: You know, it can happen a number of ways. I think likely they'll put on some kind of embargo. I think they'll uh, do that first and then um, wait to see what the Western response will be like. Uh, America kind of has committed to uh, Taiwan, and uh, through that commitment, it could involve actual combat. America has prepared has prepared uh, their alliance with Japan, where in Japan now, America not only has an additional carrier station, um, but uh, greater Air Force capability that could, in theory, knock out the Chinese Air Force from there and a lot of its missiles, or at least they would attempt that. I think it would, be a, it would be slow to start to see what, uh, how the Taiwanese react and to see if they can get them to acquiesce. Uh, but my guess is that America is at the point where, should they invade, America will take on China in at least a limited war in the Pacific. Do you think we're, do you think we're already
3: actually in World War Three? I was talking uh, with a, a friend of mine who is uh, a bit of a history buff and um, he said, you know, we, we tend to think of World War II starting with Germany invading uh, Poland in September of 39. But then there was like two years where there was – or a little over a year, I guess, where there was really nothing going on. The, the the Allies didn't confront Germany and then they rolled into France and so forth. But he says you could go back further than 39, uh, you know, the Japanese uh, invading Manchuria. When was that? 37, 38. Germany rolling into the Sudetenland and then into the into Czechoslovakia in 38. So maybe we're already in World War Three. What do you think?
7: Yes, that possibility has already uh, started when uh, Russia took over Crimea and the West did not do anything. So we had a starting point that emboldened uh, Putin. He's now well into the Ukraine and uh, U.S. foreign policy essentially right now says, look, He has to lose, because if he were to win anything big here, it will embolden China to do what they must, what they think they will need to do in Taiwan. Also, there's a technology cold war going on already, an economic one. The economic one, America has not gone 100 percent weaponization of sanctions against China, but slowly it's moving sanctions against China. It has full throttle sanctions against Russia. So in many in many respects we we're, we're, we are in that in that uh, thinking or context of World War Three, and it's just a question of picking up greater momentum and countries uh, unleashing. Do you think that
3: the uh, let's let's call it the war party, which contains both Democrats and Republicans in the U.S., uh, the Uniparty? Uh, permanent Washington, the deep state, whatever you want to call it. Do you do you think they're actually counting on this war and hoping uh, f- for this war?
7: Well, in the U.S., you do have the industrial military state and they do profit from a war. So anytime they issue those billions to the Ukraine, the Ukraine is buying American armaments. And the same has to do with the Israelis. So America is profiting from war. And an argument can be made that America does need ongoing wars to maintain that uh, $800 billion plus budget that they spend, and overall $1 trillion per year military-industrial complex. Um, so that's part of the equation. That said, uh, wars can be very inflationary. Uh, they take on huge debts, as in the case of the U.S. now, we're reaching, I think, $34 trillion in terms of its accumulated debt. So in the U.S., I think there's a lot of people who are probably invested in war directly and directly, uh, but there's also a lot of people who are invested in uh, wanting to maintain the status quo and continue to pursue liberal ideals around the world and hold on to the status quo and its institutions as it has post-World War II. Uh,
3: what are your concerns as we approach the possibility of uh, World War III? Is it... Um Cyber attacks. um, I don't know a a dirty bomb, uh, an EMP event, launching a a nuclear bomb in low altitude to knock out power grids. What do you? What? What has you? What keeps you up at night?
7: So, uh, a few things to look for as we get uh, to a bigger possible conflagration is if Putin begins to lose the war, and he's got a large tactical nuclear. Missile um, armaments that he might use a technical nuclear weapon, so that's in his play. that's a very flexible type of nuclear uh, weapon that can be used. Uh, that would be something to look for in terms of if the Chinese go and ahead and invade Taiwan and if America reacts and if that picks up a lot of momentum, I think America, uh, I think China would knock out satellites. I think China would knock out the, uh, through cyber warfare, would knock out the grid. And if we notice around the world, countries in Europe and other places are sending more of their naval vessels, protecting um, infrastructure that's under the sea, the cables for the internet and all that. So people are already aware that these plans are in play. And I think infrastructure will be knocked out. Cyber warfare will take place right away and everything will be pitch dark. At that point, anything can happen. We can have a small conflict that's uh, resolved quickly or it can get really bad.
3: Is this all a foregone conclusion or um, can this be averted?
7: Well, nothing is ever a foregone conclusion. But in my my view, given that history can move irrationally, I think uh, we're heading towards a major conflict. Can it be uh, averted at this point, given that the world or its top leaders are using really military might first and diplomacy is superficial at best um, and that we're not really seeking political solutions, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have a major conflict.
3: Sleepwalking towards World War Three, or perhaps rushing headlong, uh, head first into World War Three. Francis Crescia, guest columnist with the Western Standard, westernstandard.news. Francis, thank you so much. Great work.
7: Thank you, Richard, for having me on the show. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to
3: Jody, Jacob, and my carefulitis. I will be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing, I'll speak with you at 4 p.m. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.